It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. With the demise of events such as NABs, the New England Builders Ball, Classic Rendezvous Weekend, and even the postponement of the Philly Bike Show until spring of 2024, any opportunity to see classic bikes and talk with other enthusiasts is welcome. So next Sunday, October 22nd, Head on out to Long Island, New York for a few hours of vintage and handmade bikes along with a swap meet. Jamie Swan, frame builder and machinist extraordinaire, is the producer of this little event, and he's my guest today. Jamie will fill us in on everything you need to know about the show, as well as his incredibly cool side gig at the prestigious Webb Institute. After my conversation with Jamie... I check in with Ohio bike lawyer Steve Magus. When a group of riders literally ran into a downed wire, causing three of the riders to go down, two with injuries, they needed Ohio bike lawyer Steve Magus's expertise to help with arbitrating the case against one of the big internet providers. So what was the internet guy thinking when he left the cones and other warning signs that usually are placed on the roadway in his truck? And what's the difference between riding on the road and on a trail or path when it comes to liability? Steve will tell us the story of the riders and fill us in on what we need to know about our responsibilities on and off the road. So I know most of you probably don't live on or near Long Island, New York, but I still think this event is worthy of a conversation, especially when it's with Jamie Swan. Jamie is passionate about vintage bikes passionate about helping people to learn about them, and passionate about sharing his knowledge and expertise. Hi, Jamie. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me. It's good to talk with you again. Hi, Diane. Likewise. Yeah, we haven't spoken. uh, I think the last time we actually spoke face-to-face was at French Fender Day at Peter's. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or. Was that before or after the the New England Builders Ball? I don't remember, but it was a, around that same year. A couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about um, something that I think you're doing that has a lot of interest, but doesn't seem to have a lot of um, widespread knowledge about. And that's this Long Island rendezvous. You know, you love bicycles, you love metalworking, and your creations are just, I mean, you know, everybody loves what you do. They're so magnificent. Giving back to the community is something that I also see you doing. So I'd like to know about the Long Island Rendezvous. It was happening four times a year. It's coming up October 22nd. I wanted to make sure we got this into the next podcast. Tell us what it is, where it is, and where it's going to be held. Um, It's a little local bike show for vintage and handmade bikes, uh, show slash uh, swap meet that was my brainchild. I've been promoting it. 
Uh, it's been going on for a couple of years now. We've been doing it quarterly. Uh, as you said, the, the next one will be coming up on Sunday, October 22nd, and that'll be the, the fall. We, we call it a winter rendezvous, a spring rendezvous, summer. So that'll be our fall rendezvous and the last one for 2023. It's held in a old barn uh, that has heat and electricity and plumbing, and but it's it's a restored old barn on the grounds of the, the Smithtown Historical Society. And it's really a cool venue. I, I've been using it for years for uh, antique tool uh, meets and swap meets for old tools. So I, I've been going there for many years. And uh, so it's available for rent uh, for certain purposes. And uh, the rent is very reasonable. And uh, they give you a key and you show up and unlock the place. So it's, it's just uh, I was able to start doing these bike shows because that venue is available to me. And that, you know, having the venue uh, you know, kind of planted the seed in my mind, like, hey, we can, you know, have a bike show. Why not? So I started doing it a couple of years ago and uh, people have been coming and we spread out our old bikes and tables full of parts and uh, have a good time for a few hours. Who will be there besides you? <laughs> Local bike collectors. Uh, occasionally we have a frame builder show up. You know, people hear about it through the grapevine and come, come down out of curiosity. Uh, we're trying not to limit it in terms of what kind of bikes are appropriate. Uh, you know, I'm a long-standing member of Classic Rendezvous, and and I've it's sort of an homage to that and, and Dale Brown to to borrow that name. You know, but Classic Rendezvous has some uh, clear-cut guidelines on what years and types of bikes are considered appropriate under that heading. And, and I totally agree with Dale's judgment. And, you know, those rules that he puts up, I think they're fantastic. But for this little local show, I've sort of dispensed with all that. And, and we're saying, if it's vintage to you, it's vintage to us. If you have an old bike that you think is neat, bring it on down. So mountain bikes, uh, stingrays, you know, BMX, although it's still, you know, my friends, and it's really my circle of friends of the core group, it's vintage lightweights is, is, the, is the key thing, roadsters and things like that. But we have, uh, you know, a guy who brings down his balloon tire bikes. And, uh, you know, we have a, a smattering of other types of bikes. So if somebody wants to come down and display something, they bring a table or are there tables available? We have or? plenty of tables there. It's five bucks a head. If you want to walk through the door, you can, and for anybody, you know, whether you're a vendor or just the spectator, whatever, it's just five bucks. I have a cigar box on a table and that goes to pay the rent. And sadly, we haven't been covering the rent, so I'm subsidizing it, but um, the, uh, I, I guess that's patterned after the tool swap meets that I've been running for, for a number of years now. It's the same thing, five bucks a person, whether you're a vendor or just a, an attendee or showing or whatever, just keep it simple. Well, I think that maybe getting the word out differently, I, I imagine mostly it's been word of mouth, but you know, since the demise of NABs and now Peter's not doing French Fender Day and the Builder's Ball is gone this year, hopefully to come back. Philly moved from fall to spring. This is kind of an opportunity for some people to actually, like, you know, get their uh, steel bike <laughs> fix in, sort of, you know, that that they aren't they aren't seeing in venues where they were seeing them. I mean, I feel kind of badly that all of these shows are kind of gone. Apparently, made in Portland did very very well. Yes. Um, but, you know, I know this is small, but still it's something, right? Yes. 
and Mike Mike Cohn did his show in Auburn, and he plans to do it again. So there's a little glimmer of of hope for uh, vintage bike events. But I I totally agree with you. It's it's uh, sad that so many of these shows are, have faded away, and and there is I think a significant uh, hunger for these social activities and bike shows. So. Uh, you know, I'm doing my little part out on Long Island. The thing with Long Island is it's tough to get to. You know, people don't want to go. You have to run the gauntlet of passing through New York City to get out here. So uh, I, I think that discourages people. I don't have I, I do have a fair number of people coming from the boroughs of New York, but very few are coming from beyond. So it's mostly, a, you know, Long Island group. So there's no other way to get there but through um, the city? You can take the ferry. There are two ferries across the Long Island Sound that come from Connecticut. Okay. Oh, but so you also... can go to Connecticut. Yeah. There's probably an airstrip there too, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. You can fly here. Yes. <laughs> hey, we have we have customers who have their own planes. Uh, you know, they, they fly around the country. It's pretty well, interesting. Well, I'll pick them up at the, at the airport if need be. <laughs> well, we'll come get you with a vintage bike. There you go. You, you alluded to it, and I really want to explore it a little bit if we can, but let me take a moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Jamie Swan. People know him as an exquisite builder and a metal worker. And tell us your quote unquote part-time day job, because I've found it fascinating over these years. I work at, at, a, at a very unusual college. It's a, a, um, a school of naval architecture and marine engineering. It's called Webb Institute. We're in Long Island, in Glencove, Long Island, on the waterfront. We're in a 25-acre walled estate, and uh, we have a student, a total student enrollment of around 100. We only offer one degree. It's tuition-free. Uh, it's been in existence since 1887, and uh, I'm a lab tech slash machinist here. I teach machining and welding, and uh, I work three days a week, and it's just a fantastic place. I'm, I'm I pinch myself every day I drive through that gate. That's cool. I mean, I can remember Brian and I talking about it when we first learned what you were doing. And I'm like, what a fascinating job. So how does somebody actually become a student there? If it's only 100 students and it's tuition free, there must be some sort of um, control to get them in. You got to be really smart. <laughs> We'll start with smart. <laughs> yeah, we have the highest SAT scores in math of any college in the United States. With, you know, there's not so much standardized testing is falling by the wayside, but uh, we have our own uh, entrance exam for mathematics. You have to come and spend a day and a night. If you if you are identified as, as a PF, prospective freshman here, you have to come, you spend a half an hour being interviewed by the president of the school and you sleep in the dorms. You, if you are a student here, you're required to live on campus. No one, there's no commuters. You live here. So if you're uh, identified as a prospective freshman, part of the admissions process is to spend a day and a night here on campus. You'll attend classes, and you, uh, you'll have a, you'll sleep with a freshman. You know, somebody's going to give up their bed and go sleep someplace else, so you can stay in the dorm. And uh, you're kind of evaluated by. A, a broad spectrum of the population here, including your peers. You know, the kids kind of get to vote. Uh, the other thing that goes hand in hand with it is if you, we have brilliant kids walking in the door. And so they are very, very successful in their careers. 
and they're very strongly encouraged to donate back to the school. That's the William Webb's endowment is the fundamental funding device here, but also we have a 70 some odd percent of uh, living alumni are actively donating to the school. So that's what supports the place. Men and women can apply? Yes, yes. Yeah, they're trying to get, uh, you know, always trying to admit more women and, and uh, you know, people of color, et cetera, you know, yeah. diverse, looking for diversity. and Just like the bicycle business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not much different. Well, it sounds fascinating. Meanwhile, I, I want to just kind of go back to this whole idea that we've lost all these shows that you're doing your part to kind of like keep it alive. What about the the hand-built industry or the hand-built um, world, the artisan world of steel bikes? I mean, you and I know that there's something so exquisite, not just about the way they look, but about the way they perform. And how are we going to bring a new generation into that if it's going to happen? I mean, our our riders are aging out. Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that, Diane. I don't, I, you know, I'm not... Um it's whatever is going to happen is going to happen i don't think that uh you know we're, you or i or or anybody any one person is really going to influence it you know i i do my best to to help fledgling builders i've really that's almost a, a major theme in my life is 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 teaching you know i i do a lot of uh you know not for profit but just uh you know advising uh people who are doing frame building or machining and uh you know, so I guess that's my contribution to the to, to the thing in a way to stay optimistic about the future is to just pass along the knowledge and help people learn how to build bikes. Well, I think how I'd like to end this is with you telling people two things. One, if they're interested in the work that you're doing, and then we'll talk about the show, including just getting a piece of advice, how would they contact you? Uh, people can email me. It's, it's Jamie Swan, J-A-M-I-E-S-W-A-N 55, my birth year, at gmail.com. Okay. And then to find out about the Long Island Rendezvous, now we're going to put a uh, a graphic up on Outspoken Cyclist and links, and links to you too, but how would they come to the show? Well, yeah, unfortunately, there's no website or anything. I have a Google group. So oh. if people if people will email me, I mean, if you go to Google Groups, I think you can search. It's a closed group, so you have to ask me to be uh, enrolled in it. But I'm very happy to put anybody who's a real human being. I'll put them on the Google Group, and I think that it's going out to a couple hundred people now. A fair percentage of which don't live nearby, but just want to know what's going on. I, I posted it on a number of different um, list servers, in primarily Classic Rendezvous, but like the the Frame Builders Group and the um, Brooklyn Velodrome Vintage Wheelman, which uh, I don't know if you're aware of a person named John Pergolesi who founded the, this is a whole, it's a whole nother thing, but John passed away recently. So I just wanted to uh, say uh, our community is mourning the loss of John Pergolesi. No, I did not know him. And I'm yeah. sorry that I didn't have an opportunity to know him in the flesh. That's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. Well, the Google group. So we will remind people that they can contact you through that. And once again, this is going to be Sunday, October 22nd. What time? One o'clock to four. That time is is kind of designed so that people can, if you're traveling, you can get there by one o'clock. 
or if you're a local and you want most people want to ride on Sunday morning so you can ride get lunch and then uh come to the event some people ride from the event it, you can put there's nice roads nearby so people park there's a nice little uh the, it's like a farm-like setting you know it's uh bucolic fields and uh it's in the middle of very dense suburban area but there's a, a gravel parking lot with a grove of trees and people park there and go out for a ride and come back and go into town and get you know a slice of pizza or something nice well jamie it's always nice to catch up with you eventually i hope we get to uh see each other in person again the vintage and handmade show long island rendezvous sunday october 22nd uh be there the fall, this is the fall version. I don't know if you're going to do four again, four year, a year again. So you might take this as your opportunity to go bring your stuff. And then there is a swap meet too, you said. Yes. Okay, cool. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for talking with me. I love talking to you. Likewise, Diane. Take thanks care. Thanks so much. My thanks to Jamie for taking time to tell us about the Long Island Rendezvous Bike Show. There's a graphic on our website, OutspokenCyclist.com, as well as a link to the Google group Jamie mentioned that gives you more details. And Jamie wasn't kidding when he said he was available to chat with you about your questions. So let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak with Steve Magus, the Ohio Bike Lawyer. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. Steve Magus is a licensed attorney and has helped many cyclists who have been involved in crashes of all sorts. He also has a large database of statistics, very sobering statistics, about bicycle fatalities. Interestingly enough, Ohio has fewer than most states, but it still isn't zero. In our conversation, it becomes really clear how important it is to take stock when you find yourself in a crash and get all the data you can gather. Here's my conversation with Steve. Hi, Steve. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me. We haven't spoken in a while. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me. It's always a blast to be on your show. And it's always nice to have you because you are so smart and you've got all these legal <laughs> things down. And I want to catch up on some issues. You know, so Brian came to me and he said, did you see Steve's post? I'm like, no, I have to admit I didn't see, see it. And he kind of explained to me what happened to these riders. Um, and I'm going to let you back into the story because it was really, really weird. You posted it apparently on about September 25th, you had just come from arbitration and had won. But tell us a little bit. It's like a David and Goliath story. What happened? <laughs> right. Well, I, I've got a bunch of guys, well, guys, men, and they were riding. They're uh, all mostly older-ish, 60-plus kind of age group. And they ride a lot. And they have nice bikes. And they know what they're doing. And they're out in a country road in uh, what county is it down there? Pickaway County, maybe. Um, and it's a the road that they are on is a rural road with new housing, like like brand new development housing. It's not even if you go to Google Maps, it's not the road is on the map. But if you go to the little street scene, they, they haven't driven the car down that road to take pictures yet. So you can't even see where the crash happened. 
Um, and so there are six of them coming at a pretty good clip, probably 18, 19, 20 miles an hour. And um, all of a sudden, somebody yells, wire down. And apparently, we know now, uh, as they're heading in their direction to their left in a driveway was a Spectrum truck. And the guy from the Spectrum truck had gotten out of the truck, gone across the street, up the pole, and loosened or cut wires, which then dangled down onto the, and I think he loosened them because they came down uh, and you could see them at an angle and then they ran across the road. And a couple of the guys hit the wires on the road and went down and another one hit the, the two that were down. So three of them ended up going down. Two had injuries more severe. One had minor injuries, but his bike got all messed up. Um, and so yeah, it seemed pretty straightforward to me. I mean, the after the incident, the guy moved the truck to was more visible. He brought out all of this warning stuff, put up cones. And, you know, he obviously had all the stuff he needed to let everybody know he was there. He just wasn't using it. And the, the, the sheriff came and did an absolutely awful report. I mean, terrible. Didn't listen to what the guys were saying, got the facts wrong. He didn't care because there wasn't a car crash. He wasn't going to cite anybody. It was just He was just taking some notes, but they were wrong. They called me. Uh, we I tried to communicate with Spectrum. Took me forever to get. I think it was Spectrum, one of the, one of the big cable companies. It took me forever to get somebody to respond to me. And then uh, there was a um, a period of time where they just wouldn't answer letters. We went almost a year with this minimal communication. Me sending them stuff and them never responding. And I finally said, "Well, hey, why don't we just file a lawsuit that'll get their attention?" And so we did that. Uh, we got a lawyer involved who. It was more practical than uh, than the company was. Uh, we did some initial what we call discovery, exchange some information, and then we went to mediation before we started spending the bigger trial money on the case. And we were able to negotiate a, a fair resolution uh, in mediation. And so it was, you know, to me, it was pretty clear they were negligent. That's all we had to prove was negligence. Uh, you're not allowed to just throw stuff onto the road if you had taken a, a bucket of nails and dumped it out there or throwing a can of paint out there to make the road slippery, you know, it would have been the same kind of thing uh, or worse. But um, so I, I thought we got a fair resolution and I wrote something about it. Um, and then your question earlier about the standards, if you ride your bicycle on the roadway, like everybody drives their cars, you ride your bike. And I always say, once you cross the white line, you're in the game. You know, you're off the sidelines, you're in the game, you got to play by the rules. So you got to go in the direction of traffic, you got to be in your lane, got to stop for stop time, blah, blah, blah. That changes if you ride your bike to the bike trail. That's the standard negligence. Once your wheels touch the bike trail, the asphalt, same asphalt, the standard changes. And now, if someone hurts you, you have to prove not that they were negligent or careless. You have to step up and prove they were reckless or willful and wanton behavior. They intentionally tried to hurt you. Those are the next rungs of the liability ladder. Should you step up a notch from negligent to reckless? And of course, you can rarely prove reckless. I mean, people are careless. They do stupid things, but they don't necessarily do reckless things on a bicycle on the on the bike trail. I don't know if they had a blindfold on or they were. You know, standing up on the bike and trying to show off and they fell off and took you out, maybe that would be reckless. But somebody just, you know, going a little faster around a curve and comes left to center and they hit you. I don't think that's, I don't know that that's reckless. I don't know that the jury would find that. So 
I want to ask you a question before we move on out of this at all. And that is, how were you able, if the Spectrum guy suddenly realized now that he has three downed riders, that he needs to get his crap out of the car and put up the cones and put up the, you know, and show that, how were you able to prove that he hadn't done it beforehand? He could have just said, well, they were out there. They never saw them. Oh, yeah. It could have been a he said, he said situation. Right, right. It wasn't. He didn't deny that he didn't have the stuff on. So, so that was good. And yeah, anymore, he was a good I mean, guy then. <laughs> in many communities today, I'd have been able to get some uh, some ring uh, camera footage to show, too, because that's, right. we use that. A lot of times uh, folks are riding with GoPros and, and other things along those lines. So we often get video footage or, or other camera footage or security footage. I had a, a fatal crash way out in the middle of the country but on the corner it's like three cornfields and a house but the house had a security system and they had a camera pointing towards the intersection and it captured my guy getting clobbered by a truck uh in the middle of the uh the truck didn't even slow down and going through the stop sign so you know we see those cameras kind of everywhere now rural and uh and urban settings so we often get video footage that way let me reintroduce you. Let me take a moment. We're speaking with Steve Magus. He is the bike lawyer. Ohio bike law, OhioBikeLawyer.com. And so the rules in Ohio, that's the next place I want to go. So these trail rules, are they Ohio trail rules that, that say now you're a you're a recreational rider? Because I noticed in the comments, and, and we'll we'll refer them back to the your Facebook post because there's some interesting comments there. In your in the comments, um if I'm not mistaken, it's Chuck, Chuck Smith, maybe from Ohio Bicycle Federation, uses one of the trails to commute from A to B. And those trails are all outside of the Xenia, Dayton, Cincinnati, the little Miami trail system, I think is what he's talking about. And if he were hurt on the trail, he would have no recourse the way these riders did on the road. Is, Is there any way to change that or... Is this an Ohio rule or is it a national mm. park rule or just? Yeah. So there's 10 questions in there. Let me try to. Yeah, hit them okay. Up. Let's, let's sort it out. <laughs> so there, it's not a, it's not a written rule where there's a sign or a book and you go to it and it says, this is the rule. Uh, what happens is that, you know, on the roads, we have traffic laws. And if you break a traffic law, it doesn't matter if you do it intentionally, recklessly, willfully, or carelessly you break the traffic law on the road then you are and somebody gets hurt you know then you are liable for that and if the other person is also careless then the juries can actually measure or you know take some 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 measurement of each of you and as long as you're not more negligent than they were then if it's 50 50 you win you just win half your damages um, if it's 60 to 40 and you're 60 then you don't win anything in ohio so that's an ohio rule for ohio roads once you get on the bike trail, you're on sort of private property. The, the traffic rules don't apply anymore. Each trail could theoretically uh, create their own rules for for certain things. I mean, most of these things we're talking about are multi-use trails. They're not bike-only roadway or bike roads or something like that. They're, they're not bike lanes or multi-use trails. And they have a set of rules usually at the top. But what I'm talking about is when something happens, uh, something somebody gets hurt, and now the lawyers are coming in, the insurance companies are coming in, they're trying to assess who's at fault, and what are the standards. In those situations, the courts have set up 
one sort of cubbyhole of liability uh, for recreational users. And I call that small r, recreational user, because the courts say once you're, once you're using a bike trail and not a road, you are a recreational user. Your, your intent is irrelevant. Your, the fact that you're commuting from your home to your law office is irrelevant, or you're going to a business meeting or whatever. Those things are sort of irrelevant. Uh, you are a recreational user. And as a recreational user, uh, you are governed by this higher, you have to prove a higher level of culpability. You have to prove, uh, if you prove somebody's negligent, you lose. If you prove they are reckless, then you can can win. Like if you're at a playing softball, people do careless things on a softball field. If somebody slides into you and takes you out, you break your ankle, there's no liability there. You have to prove somebody was recklessly or, or more uh, to, uh, to win. Um, that's small r, recreational user. Sometimes on the trail, stuff happens because the trail sucks. You know, there's a, a pothole. There's uh, a divot in the trail that's unfixed that eats up a bike tire like a sewer grate, and you go flying off of that or something along those lines. There is a statute in Ohio called the Capital R Recreational User Statute, and that statute protects landowners who open up their lands for free. That's the that's the kicker. You have to open up your land for free. You can't charge a dollar or fifty cents to ride the, the trail or something like that. But if you do that, you cannot be sued for negligently not you know creating a hazard negligently. If you set a trap for someone, that's that goes beyond you know you set up some booby trap to capture people or or smack people with limbs or whatever. You know that doesn't fall under that. But for the typical what they call premises liability. People fall down, they get hurt, they they fall off of something, the road gives way or whatever. You're not generally liable for that. That's a tough, uh, it's tough to get around then. I want to wrap this part of it up because I want to yeah. talk to you about some of the other stuff that you're so good at and that you've been <laughs> sort of tra- um, testing, tracking for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, so if, if I'm not mistaken, was it maybe two or three, maybe even longer ago because the pandemic has made our memories so weird um, mm-hmm. that somebody hit on a trail, a divider. So at some trailheads, they have a left, right divider. So you're going to stay to the left of it. to the Yeah. And he hit it. And it, as I remember, he went down and died. Yeah. It was a guy out of Mansfield, Ohio. I'm very familiar with that area. And uh, there would be in all likelihood, no liability for that. He was in a group, as I recall, and the rider in front of him scooted around it, and he didn't turn. He hit it like head on and, and crashed and was killed. Okay. Um, so I don't, you know, I mean, part of me is a fan. Part of me is uh, is a fan of bollards, heavy duty bollards in certain situations uh, because they're very effective at protecting people in a bike lane or you know keeping cars out of an area where you don't want them to go. But if they're in the middle of a lane, you know, it's it's. Uh, it presents a challenge sometimes. You just have to. Um, that, that one was removed, and you put up the flex posts. And the next thing you know, there's a car, you know, choosing to drive on the bike trail uh, to get around something else. And, yeah, 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 to keep cars off. But and and we've seen them 
you know, move the bollards down or lock them in place uh, right. on, into yeah. the ground when they needed to get an ambulance down the, the road. We've seen them do that, too. Yeah. Um, we're speaking with Steve Magus. He's the Ohio bike lawyer. Always an interesting conversation. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk to him about some of the statistical gathering that he does and has done for many, many years. You're listening yeah. to The Outspoken Cyclist. We will be right back. We are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. We're speaking with Ohio bike lawyer Steve Magus, who probably has plenty on his plate right now. You're busy, huh? Uh, yeah, we're always busy. You know, we, we have, uh, I like to have cases in three different sort of boxes. I like to have new cases, I like to have percolating cases, and I like to have cases in the pipeline that are teetering on the edge of resolution so we can get those, uh, get those going. We have a, you know, we have a good number of cases right now. So it's, uh, it's busy, but you know, and sometimes you think, well, that's uh, maybe statistically unavoidable, but it's still kind of uh, kind of harsh sometimes what we see on the roads. Well, let's talk about statistics for a moment. As I remember, you have and probably still are gathering statistics about fatalities in Ohio. Is that still true? Yep, we even started a nonprofit called the Bicycle Crash Research Center (BCRC), which, if I ever slow down the real work. I'll be able to populate that, that. The point of establishing this was to set up a 501c3 to take over this uh, research I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years on uh, crash crashes, statistics, fatalities, injuries, and all that kind of thing. We haven't quite tossed the bucket into their lap yet, but we're working on it. So how is Ohio doing, and are you able to compare Ohio to other uh, states in the country? Or even yeah. worldwide. Yeah. So I always say Ohio is very safe relatively compared to other states. How do you how do you look at that? I mean, over just looking at raw numbers doesn't tell you much. I mean, California is a huge state with lots of people. They're likely going to have a lot more crashes because it's a nice place to ride and they're going to have more fatalities. Texas is a big state. Florida is a big state. Ohio, though, is the seventh largest state in the country. People don't realize that. But we're number seven out of 50. When we look at what I what they call the rate of, of fatal crashes, so what is the rate of fatal crashes? That means how many people per 100,000 or million population do you expect to uh, die? They bail the numbers. And if uh, in Ohio, when you look at it, when you look at it from that statistical perspective, we are we are much better than the national average. Uh, often the smaller states have uh, more fluctuating rates because they only have a couple, you know, fatalities a year. And if somebody goes from, like New Hampshire goes from two to four, all of a sudden they've doubled their rate. But by and large, uh, you know, Florida leads the league. They're the worst by far. It's a big state. They're not, they're not quite twice as big as us, but their fatality rate is probably five or six times what Ohio's is. Ohio is below the median. So we're like 33rd or something out of 50 in terms of being safe. So we're, given the fact that we're that big, to me, that says this is a very safe place to ride. And we have relatively few fatalities 
compared to what you might expect from looking at the national average or from looking at the other big states in the country. So that's a good thing. Um, what has changed since around 2006 or seven, um, things have changed. We In the 70s, we were at the highest level. In the 80s, it came down. The 90s, fatalities total came down. 2000, they came down. And then there's a shift. And since about 2006, 7, they've been climbing every year. And now we're at a point where we're almost to 1970s levels. Um, I think there's a master's or PhD uh, dissertation ready to be written there. But nobody's really studying that. Uh, I think it has to be at least partially related to the fact that you look at what other things are going on socially in that time frame, and gee, the iPhone came out, and gee, the Facebook was created, and Instagram, and you know, whatever, all the other X's and Twitters, and all the other social media sites, and people went from driving their cars with some distractions uh, to driving their cars with a device that they could take a picture while they're driving, and then click a few things and post that picture. Hey, look at me, I'm driving. And you can send it out to you know, 3 billion people on Facebook or whatever. Um, there, that, there, to me, there has to be some statistical way to figure out how to measure that. Uh, but I've, it's got to be related in there somewhere. That, that's too big of a major societal change to not have any impact at all on uh, the fact that we all of a sudden numbers for the most vulnerable population, cyclists, pedestrians, those numbers are going up. Car driver deaths are coming down. So people are, are not killing motorists in cars quite as often, but they are killing others that aren't in cars more. What do you think about the what the pandemic did? So for a while, we didn't go anywhere and people were riding and walking in streets and running and, and, and doing those kinds of things. And the people who were on the road decided that speed was important. Oh, yeah. So now oh, we've yeah. got this change in in sort of mindset about what's okay when it says 35 miles an hour that it's okay to do 50. People are mad if you're in their way and you're going anywhere close to the feet on it. I mean, uh, I read a, uh, an article that uh, in 2010, 2020 and 21, they wrote more 100 mile an hour plus tickets than at any other time in our history of driving. And, you know, people could just stomp on the gas. Nobody's in front of it, and they could just go. If you were on the road, you could go fast and you know, pretty much with impunity. Um, and I think that has been a, been a carryover to that because we've certainly seen an uptick in in uh, crashes in Ohio in the last uh, few years. We've had we had our worst year ever. I want to say it was 2021. Um, we had almost 30 riders killed, usually prior to the 06 timeframe for many, many, many years, we averaged 16, 17 fatalities in Ohio. That was the average. Now it's closer to 20, just in the last 10 years. The the uptick has been, you know, it's a 25% increase almost. So it's we've had a still keeps us in a low rate compared to other states, but it's it's a disturbing uptick in the number of uh, people who are killed on the road. So a lot of communities have. Uh, instituted a Vision Zero program. Are they working? Do you know? Do they work? I think that if they can change the landscape, to me, that is the most effective means of, of cutting uh, cutting uh, fatalities and crashes. And by that, I mean change the road diet, change the narrow the lanes, 
do things physically to make it scarier to drive fast. You know, there's speed bumps, there's things that come in, they, they channel the traffic down to a narrow lane, and those are very effective at reducing speeds. But speed kills, we know that. If, if you're hit by a car at 40 miles an hour on a bike or a pedestrian, your odds of dying are dramatically greater, like 10 times greater than if you're hit at 30 or 20. And right. so if we can get that speed down into that 20 to 30 range around town, uh, at least when there are crashes, there are going to be, A, there's going to be more of a likelihood somebody's going to survive, and B, the slower the speed, the more time it, uh, that is in the perception reaction uh, within the driver's head. If they're not going as fast, they're not catching everything, catching up to everything so fast, and there's a little more time to perceive something out there. It's, oh, gee, there's a bike. I should slow down and go around them. And if you're going 40 or 50, you're just chewing up the real estate very quickly and you're on it before you you can uh, make a decision sometimes. So the last thing I want to talk about is any advice you would give listeners who are riding their bikes that they may not think about if they're involved in a crash. I know there are certain things that get glossed over, witnesses disappear, that kind of thing. But I, I imagine cameras, uh, some of the new technology that's out there, Cycle IQ and and GoPro and that have helped. But what would you say a, a cyclist should do first and foremost, as long as he or she's conscious um, and, and able to sort of see what's going on, uh, what they should do first if they are involved in a crash? Sure. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of things, and it's hard to keep that in mind because Many things happen when you're involved in a crash to your brain and to your body. You're running on adrenaline. Uh, you may not realize you're hurt many times, many times. And uh, over the years, I've had cyclists who kind of poo-poo the EMTs, you know, because they're feeling pretty good. And, and I had one fellow who had literally had a clavicle fracture sticking up. And he, he rode his bike away from the scene, realized, oh, gee, I'm in a lot of pain. And he rode straight through the doors of a little dock-in-the-box uh uh, urgent care a mile or two down the road. And next thing you know, he's in surgery for a clavicle fracture when that the magic fairy dust of adrenaline wears off. So get yourself safe, get the EMTs there, make sure the police get there. And then um, if you can get photographs of the scene, because the police, I, we, I just took in a case where it was up in uh, the center of Ohio. Um, eight cyclists are at a stop sign uh, uh, and they're wanting to go onto a busier road. On the busy road, two vehicles are coming towards each other. The big truck makes a left turn into the road where the cyclists are. The car hits the truck and sends the truck into the group of cyclists. So now we got eight cyclists trying to avoid getting uh, crushed by a, a sliding pickup truck. Five of them are injured. There's multiple uh, uh, sheriff cars. There's EMTs all over the place. And, there's, and the sheriff didn't take a single photo. And and they didn't do any sort of crash reconstruction. They didn't take any measurements. They didn't interview the witnesses. They just gave the young driver a ticket and sent everybody on their way. And I got the, you know, I'm looking for the, usually there's in a crash like that. There's a 60 page report. They got measurements laid out and they're, they're, they're looking at the, the cars and the black boxes or whatever. None of that was done. So to the extent you can, you or your buddies, your friends can, take pictures and document the scene, get information from people who are at the scene, because once that scene evaporates, you can't get it back. 
Um, so if there's skid marks, if there's uh, those kind of things at the scene for the, the person, understand when you're going out there that, hey, hey take your phone. Um, B, if you have a camera, if you're out there a lot, I tell people, you know, cameras are cheap these days. You might as well have one and ride it. You can just delete anything that doesn't happen, and then you use it over again. But that data is is just uh, hard to beat. Same with Strava, GPS data. We get a lot of that. Um, you might want to note if there are uh, ring cameras or houses with the doorbell cameras around or security cameras because that footage can get eaten up in a hurry. I have uh, had a couple of recent crashes that we were caught on Ohio uh, uh, or whatever, you know, the BP camera uh, that's uh, aimed at the pumps, but in the upper left-hand corner, oh, gee, here's our crash. And so we've been able, we have to secure that very quickly because that gets, uh, that gets uh, uh, not always saved as the way it should. After you're, you know, you're taken, you know, don't poo-poo your injuries. Uh, if you if the EMTs want to take you, let them take you. Your bike will be fine. People will take care of it. Uh, get make sure you document your injuries. Take photographs of even in the hospital and ER, whatever. It seems weird to take you know get your camera out and snap pictures, but once those moments are gone, they're gone, and you, we can't recreate them. So if someone can do that, um, that is very helpful in in these types of cases. You're all all of this is just setting up. A potential claim that may play out a year later, uh, you know, if if you delay in getting counsel and then all of a sudden all this stuff is gone and we can't get to it, um, yeah, we can't get to it. If you have things like that, that makes our job of proving what happened, proving the liability, having the best information and data on the injuries and all that, it just that makes all aspects of the case down the road a lot better for you and for, and for us to get them done. Well, the last thing is, if you live in Ohio, and I assume you only practice in Ohio. Um, I practice in Ohio. I'm licensed in Ohio. I have a buddy who's a Kentucky lawyer and we'll tag team cases in Kentucky. Uh, I can be admitted, uh, we call pro hoc vice for the purpose of a single case. If we have a case, I can have, a, have that. I've also done that in Indiana and New Jersey and Florida and a couple other states where I get called in to do fight cases from afar and then hook up with local counsel and I can be involved that way. So, but yes, sorry. So how can they contact you? How can they find oh, you? Oh, sure. You can always find me at ohiobikelawyer.com, my email, bikelawyer at me, me.com. And the phone is 513-Cincinnati, 513-484-BIKE, 484-2453. So any of those things, you can text me there, send me uh, pictures, notes, whatever. Uh, we try to get back to people you know, within minutes or same day as we, we get uh, any sort of communication. We try to be prompt with that. And we handle cases all over. I mean, I've got cases. Uh, I've had a couple in Indiana. I've had several in Kentucky. We settled a, a case for uh, $1.1 in Kentucky, a very bad case where we happen to have a lot of insurance coverage. i got cases pending now from Cincinnati to Cleveland, Bell Fountain, Marietta, Toledo, Youngstown, Mansfield, all over Ohio. And uh, given the way practices today. I do all of the things I do for a case that's five minutes away. I do the same way for a case that's 500 miles away. I mean, it's we do it all online and and um, you know, we, we always like to investigate the crashes in person. So we try to get the scene and all that. But, but for the data collection, a lot of it's done uh, by phone and online. Now. Well, as always, it's fascinating talking with you and, and hearing what's going on you know it is our worst nightmare as cyclists 
to be involved mm-hmm. in something like this, but it's also good to have the the background and the data and the information you need to protect yourself if something happens. So we've been speaking with Steve Magus, Ohio bike lawyer. Wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Diane. Let's stay safe on the road out there. Stay safe, ride legal, ride safe. And uh, yeah, it's Ohio is a safe state. I, I, I preach that all the time. I'm kind of gloom and doom guy when that comes to the numbers, but uh, when it's actually time to ride, most people, 99.9% of the time they go out, they ride their bike, they have a blast, they come home safely. And in that little tiny sliver of things, when things go wrong, you know, then uh, we have to get involved. I, I like saying, I'm like Liam Neeson. You know, I- My thanks to Steve Magus for speaking with me today. If you would like to know more about his statistical project, need his advice, or find yourself in a situation where you might need representation, log on to ohiobikelawyer.com. Please remember that you can find links, photos, a written transcript, and show notes at OutspokenCyclist.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app so you never miss an episode. Next time on The Outspoken Cyclist, we'll be speaking with frame designing pioneer Georgina Terry. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page. Or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.